if you're going to attempt to oversee change, go to where people are today. Don't tell people they're wrong. Recognise where they are, why they're there, history of why they might be there, and try and work out what's going to incentivize them to change. Hello, and welcome to The Growth Business, a business podcast sponsored by InCloud Solutions, the centre of excellence for mid-market ERP software business by design. I'm your host, Lucy Thorpe, and I'm so pleased to be joined in this episode by Kirsty Bashforth. Kirsty is Chief People and Communications Officer at De Averum, and uh, she's an expert in organisational culture and the author of a book called Culture Shift. She's held a number of non-executive director positions, but for several years, she was in charge of values and change management at BP. And we'll go back to that in a minute. Kirsty, welcome. Thanks. It's really nice to be here, Lucy. Lovely to have you. So if we start with your current role, then just to bring us up to speed, really, perhaps you could tell us, you know, how it's been for you, because we've all been working from home, working remotely for the last year. You've also had clinical people who've needed to get on site, haven't you, during this this weird period? Tell me how that's been for you and your people. Yeah, um, pretty challenging for a lot of people in the organization. We're a company that operates in 24 countries from Albania to Argentina, Kazakhstan to China, UK to Italy. So very varied. Um, And we do renal dialysis. So people are in clinic, you know, the vast, vast majority of our 12,000 staff, sort of 11 and a half thousand of them are in clinic. So that's really been even more intense experience for them, keeping the patients safe. And remember, these are patients who are pretty ill anyway, so it's even more intense. Wearing more PPE, going to work every day, but on a more intense basis. And then the office workers, about 400 of us around the world, have been more and more remote, operating remotely. And so we've got used to the sort of the the leadership style of, of big remote meetings. So it's been very different, but actually, interestingly, a whole global community has felt more together, certainly from the office environment, than we did before. We've learned to work um, very well remotely, but that doesn't take away from the intensity of our clinical staff who are pretty exhausted. Yes, I was going to ask you, actually, how does company culture survive under these circumstances? You seem Mm. to be suggesting that maybe it survives better. Well, I think it's it's different. It's different for every organisation. And I think there is always a company culture, it just whether it's healthy or unhealthy, whether it's sustainable or not sustainable. So, and I think probably for another 18 months, two years, we won't really know what's been created because it's a bit like really stretching the elastic band and and then it'll it'll come back to something that is different because I see culture as always evolving, never quite getting to the exact point you want, but we're all humans, it's all about our behavior, we all change. So. I don't think culture won't survive. I think culture will just be different and it will play out. And depending on people's circumstances, it's whether they've thrived or not thrived. It's whether um, they've joined a company and it's, you know, if, if, if they've joined a company, it's a bit more difficult to understand what really is it? How do I really soak it up? But but for a lot of people, I've been amazed at people's resilience. And I think we've, I don't want to really leap to too many conclusions about what will the culture be afterwards until we start seeing things settling down a bit, which we're, we're clearly not there yet. I mean, a lot of companies have been going to to great lengths to look after their staff and to yeah. check in with them and, and, and so forth. Is that the impression that you're getting? Yes, there's been an awful lot of... Um, 
almost reversion to uh, what you might call the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, whether you're on a company executive committee, whether you're a team leader in a clinic, whether you're on a board, the top of the agenda for the whole last year and continues is shelter, safety, welfare, basic needs. How are our staff? I think that goes for every company. Uh, but certainly in Diavarum, we've been focusing on it an awful lot, even whether it's down to the sort of half hour lunchtime Fika remote session. Fika is a Swedish term for sort of coffee and a coffee and a chat, whether it's even a half hour Fika session for leadership around the world just to check in or whether it's real support for our clinical staff in just how to get to work, extra help for nursery um, support, um, a bit of more time off. We actually had a, um, a program called Staff for Life where we, we handed to each country, here's a pot of money for you to do what is right for your staff in your local country context, whatever that is. It was incredibly how, how incredible how creative people were. And it's um, it's a thank you or it's a, it's a lunch off or it's a, it, it's not always money, but it's there was a pot of money there to support people. And I think lots of companies have been doing that. It's been heartening in an odd sort of ironic way, uh, the focus that companies have had on this. No, I know what you mean. It, it's kind of taken everybody back to basics, as you, as you were saying. Yeah. yeah. So let's look at your book, which I mm. have here. Um, oh. An old friend <laughs> <laughs> called Culture Shift. And mm. um, I'm quite interested in, in how you came to write it in the first place. What drove you to write the book? Well, um, it, you might notice if you look at the book, it's not about, while I did 24 years at BP, it's not about BP. Now, I learned an awful lot in how to manage organisational culture through my time at BP, and I wanted to really get my knowledge down of what I knew to this point before it, you know, your, your own mind changes your own history, actually. So I wanted to get down what I had. And by this stage, I'd left BP and was running my own organisational culture advisory business. Get your knowledge down have it as a product and a sort of a thick business card as well, you know, read this book, this is what I do, and giving people advice on, well, read that chapter or read that chapter, that's particularly what I'm talking about. And it was a, a sort of a lifelong mission as well. I always wanted to be able to write a book, never thought I would be able to, or given the opportunity, and the lovely people at Bloomsbury enabled me to do that, and, and a wonderful, wonderful agent called Hattie who after a 20 minute conversation said, uh, I think this is the book you've got in you and supported me through it. So a number of reasons, and I'm, I'm really glad I did it, but with all things around culture, I've learned more since then. So it's a continued learning process, actually. Okay, so maybe we need to get back to basics slightly then um, for people who aren't familiar with the whole setup. Um, mm. BP, you work for BP. Um, they went through a situation where they'd had an oil spill um, in 2010 and presumably mm. that, that left in its wake all kinds of problems, which mm. you then dealt with by um, addressing their company culture. Do you want to sort of give me the potted version of yeah. what happened after that? Absolutely. So um, I'd worked for BP for since 1991. And yeah, 2010, Deepwater Horizon um, accident in the Gulf of Mexico was 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 horrific for everybody, everybody involved, um, and clearly, most importantly, the families involved, but for everybody involved in the company, it was it was very difficult experience to live through for everybody. Um, and in the light of that, there were an awful lot of projects obviously going on when you have any sort of company crisis like that. Um, and one of the projects going on was to make sure that the culture the company had was clear, simple, consistent, understood by all, and implemented consistently. Um, 
And the, the company was way over 100 years old at that point and had over the last, the previous sort of 10, 15 years done a lot of mergers and acquisitions and integrations. So there was a, an opportunity not just to simplify and clarify and ensure that the culture we needed was the culture that we had expected and were having, but also a sort of a unification for all of the staff involved in the company as well. Um, some had grown up in different cultures uh, and so there was a, a clarity about that as well. So my role was, it was called Group Head of Organisational Effectiveness, bit of a mouthful, but really it was to oversee the clarification and real living out of the culture that we wanted. It was a huge privilege. It was exhausting, exhilarating, and a massive privilege because you knew that you were working with people and we were really helping to evolve the company beyond where it was and also for the good of the future generations of people working in the company as well. So it was um, five years of real privilege, actually. It's a fabulous role. So when you bring about change like this, I mean, there's, there's so many things that you have to address. I guess one of the things, the things that I'm really interested in is resistance, uh, because in my kind of line of work, we often find people um, are resistant to change when you're trying to um, change the way that they do things, whether it's introducing computers and new business practices, or whether it's, as you do new business culture what advice do you have to people um, who are dealing with people who are resistant to change I, I always think there are this is a huge simplification but I, I tend to assume there are three audiences whenever you're going through change one is those who who are up for change eager for change always that the first people to put the hands up and, and use discretionary energy to say yes 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 let's go with it there's also a bunch of people who are more likely to to you could say be skeptical cynical resist whether it's I'm not, we've been here before, you don't understand, we'll never change, or whether they are divisively trying to stop you, or whether they're just a bit nervous, but there's a group of people who are more or less resistant to change. And there's a massive group in the middle, I call the sort of silent majority, who will follow if they believe and trust and see, but won't jump in. And, and so often I think we, we focus too much on the people who are resistant and not enough on the silent majority in the middle. Because if you get the silent majority in the middle, following the people who are wanting to change anyway, you've got sort of two thirds of the organization. And um, so that's a first principle. Yes, there are always people who resist, but don't only focus on them. Focus on the people who aren't saying anything because they're the ones who will really swing it because they, they're almost the most loyal followers once they do trust the data. I think I, I would always advise that if you're going to attempt to oversee change, go to where people are today. Don't tell people they're wrong. Recognize where they are, why they're there, history of why they might be there, and try and work out what's going to incentivize them to change. Because culture is all about habits and behaviors and assumptions and perceptions. It's not always easy to pick up and put in a box, but it's therefore reason then they're often deeply ingrained habits and to tell somebody your habits are wrong you now need to do these habits I've told you therefore you will do it well it, you know that's not going to work it's a bit like telling somebody you know lose weight okay fine how do you do that eat fewer calories how do I do that we'll just eat fewer well it's not that simple so it's it's really going to where people are and finding what makes them tick what incentivizes them and makes it almost inevitable for them to do what you'd love them to do. And that's not just because you're persuading them. 
it could be processes or simple things that you know that they want and you've got to work out how to incentivize them. If I was to sum it up, behavioral economics, which sounds a bit theoretical, but those are a few pieces of advice I would give people. Wow. Um, And you obviously can't do this all yourself, which is another one of your points, isn't it? That if you're trying to bring about change, you shouldn't be the one necessarily doing it at a micro level. Yes. Uh, To me, you know, culture is not a project. It's a it's a state of being and on a way of working and just how it is around here. Um, And that is the result of everybody's behaviors, everybody's habits, everybody's language, everybody's assumptions, everybody's perceptions. Uh, the way they talk with each other, the habits of what happens when nobody's around, what do you really do? You can't manage that with a spreadsheet. You can't create a Gantt chart and say, because I've done this, therefore the culture is fixed. It, first of all, it's organic. It's, it's evolving all of the time because new people come and go and context shifts. But secondly, the way to shift it comes in so many forms, whether it's storytelling or changing a process or etching the values on the wall and all of those different angles that you've got to leave it to the people who own those to do them. You who's overseeing it are the the conductor of the orchestra, but you can't, you're not there to play every instrument. You're there to ensure that the instruments join up, align, work together, follow the music. And the music here is the culture that you're trying to get to, the cultural expectations. You're conducting the orchestra or air traffic controlling the the pilots who are flying the planes, you're setting the airspace. So that's how I see leading culture shift. If anybody tells me, well, I, I ran a culture change product, I changed the culture. I first of all say, no, you didn't. What were you really doing? Because if that's somebody's mindset of they changed the culture, no, they didn't. They may have set out the context. They may have helped clarify the expectations. They may have conducted the orchestra, but they didn't change the culture. Everybody changes the culture. And of course, you've got to start at the top, haven't you? And um, if you don't have the management buy-in, then you're on a hiding to nothing. So I guess that's number one, is it, at the top of the list of the things you have to do? It is pretty difficult to shift a culture across, a a whole organisation to shift a culture if it's not going to be aligned with where the very top personal people are, because leaders cast the biggest shadow. So how the leader or leadership acts is how an awful lot of people will follow. So therefore, you know, the logic says, if the leadership is up for shifting, or is whatever that is, looking in the mirror, redefining, transforming, tweaking their culture, they have to be properly in it. And I don't mean that they look elsewhere and say the problem with the culture is. No, the problem with the culture starts with how leadership's culture is. And if they think it's a problem, you need to turn your mirror on yourselves and go, well, what is it that we are doing that is creating or emphasizing or reinforcing the culture that we don't seem to want. And so they have to be very self-reflective to start with, just like they're asking the whole organization to be reflective. So it does matter that leadership is in it, up for it, willing to self-reflect and practice, because just because you've set out a new culture doesn't mean that we're all sort of paragons of virtue of it just because we've said we all want to be innovative or inspirational or this, that, the other. We've all got to practice. We're, none of us is, is brilliant at it. But it's not the only condition, but it is a prerequisite because I've, I've tried to do this work a couple of times when leadership is really not making a nod to it or 
writing it on a piece of paper and thinking it is theoretical and and therefore nothing will change it's just words it's just pretty marketing um which just leaves people actually a bit more cynical and irritated because then they they go well you know you're not in for it so why should i be and it, it leads to detachment rather than engagement and that kind of touches on another area that i'm really interested in you sort of said you can write it down on a piece of paper or it's just marketing you know, with so, so many companies doing social media and wanting to have a tone of voice, whatever you're promising or saying in the in the social media, whatever tone of voice you're adopting, that has to sort of reflect back on on what it's really like. It's got to be aligned, hasn't it? It's got to it's got to be consistent. Yeah, it has. So reputation per se is not culture and brand per se is not culture. Culture is what's going on inside your organization in the way that it works every day and how it thinks and what its purpose is and how lined up that is. But your reputation is impacted by what you do and your brand is impacted by what you do because it's humans who are carrying this out. So it's the feeder for those. And yes, it's a very dangerous game to play to have social media that's portraying one tone of voice if actually inside you are not aligning to that or it's disingenuous or even by accident it's not happening. So culture takes active management or active oversight all the time and be really conscious. What is our culture? How is it? We Just because we've got words doesn't mean it's happening. How do we track it such that we're aligning up our tone of voice externally that represents that? The last thing you want is a, let's say you're doing customer service and you're approaching customers in one way and yet issuing a different culture internally. And that's a disaster waiting to happen. You're not going to attract great staff either over time. Well, I was going to say, I mean, do you think it is the case that the, sort of the new generation Zs are calling out this where they where they see inconsistencies and saying we don't want to work for companies with, with bad culture? So I think... They are, I'd almost put it more positively than that. I'd flip it more proactively rather. I'd say that more often, more people are now making it a choice point as a fundamental, am I going to want to work for this company because it's got to align with what I believe in life and how I want to structure my day and career and do they give me that choice? I would also say that there are more people than just Gen Z. I think it's more of a a general point now it is a choice point for more and more people not least because investors are looking at this as well any listed company is now very much more mindful of of the letters esg which is excellent um, because it's always been an important thing but when investors in listed companies are, are are saying i will or i won't invest in a company or i will i won't vote for this policy due to how you're approaching your environmental your social and your governance then it starts to really bite for people at the top of a company, whether they think it's important or not, if the investors who are buying into the company think they've got to shift. So it's becoming not just um, not just a choice point for Gen Z. It's becoming a, a really recognized and hallelujah for that core driver of sustainable business performance. There have always been people who've thought that there have always been people who've assumed it's a soft topic. It's becoming a hard topic for everybody now. And I think COVID has made that even more recognisable. And it's not that culture hasn't always existed. Culture has always existed in any organisation, whether a leadership decides that it matters or not. How they have led has always mattered and has always created a culture. But it's being much more regarded as an active asset to be overseen, governed and invested in. 
than it ever has been before. And, and as you say, as a choice point for great talent to want to work with your organisation. And how are the investors putting the slide rule over these intangibles? What can companies do to make sure that they're coming across well? So it's a, it's, it's a very evolving topic. And it is, um, yeah, you could imagine investors want, they want numbers, they want KPIs, they want stats. Uh, they want to be able to measure something that can be intangible tangibly. So they will look at employee engagement statistics they, and trends. They will look at diversity ratios. They will look at social investment, social impact. They will look at how involved employees are in company decision making. There are a whole load of measures that you might say are leading indicators of whether this stuff is really being taken seriously in, in companies as performance. Now, I got to the end of the book today when I read the epilogue and um, (laughs) you say that somebody had said to you or people have said to you, why don't you just focus on the numbers? And and I suppose this kind of speaks a little bit to what you were just saying about spreadsheets and intangibles. So why in your career didn't you just focus on the numbers? Well, two reasons. One, philosophically, because the numbers I have, maybe this is a naive view. I don't think it's a naive view. I think it's, it's correct. The numbers will be right if the people are lined up to deliver them and the strategy is right. But if you just focus on the numbers, goodness knows what the people are doing. You, 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 you don't know. And we're all humans. We're all, we're all got our own minds. And as I, I say, I think in the book as well, it's not prison and it's not slavery. So we choose to come to work to every, every day. If we chose not to, yes, we wouldn't earn a wage. But we choose to come to work every day and we use our free minds to do it. So people will work differently. They will react differently and they won't always be aligned. So you've got to work on that alignment and that motivation and that incentives. And if you do with an aligned set of expectations and a strategy and you put your infrastructure and your process set up, the numbers are way more likely to be the numbers that you want. So I focus on the inputs, not the outputs. The second one is, while I'm highly numerate, I'm not, I don't wake up in the morning loving looking at a balance sheet. Um, I wake up in the morning wanting to know where the best ideas are coming from, wanting to learn more, wanting to focus on what makes people tick because businesses are people. You could say businesses is infrastructure or capital. Yeah, but it's run by people. It's maintained by people. It's invested in by people, much as AI is massive and huge and and enormously value adding. It's not running businesses all the world yet and as long as it isn't that's why I'm not focusing on the numbers I think that comment also comes from people who, who believe that if if something isn't tangibly able to have a return on investment on it and with some wonderful spreadsheet then it doesn't matter because if they can't quantify it in a box it clearly isn't valuable which is a huge assumption that is wrong so those are the three for me okay so what does the future hold for you you seem to be pretty settled and happy doing what you're doing at the moment have you got any plans that you want to let us in on I love working I love working in a a company that is a real purpose I mean when you're giving people renal dialysis they show up three times a week four hours a day or if they're not getting a transplant they die so you're doing something that is helping people live a more fulfilling life well, a life in the first place, and then hopefully more fulfilling. So I love that. I'm also, I really enjoy my non-exec career. I'm on the board of Serco, and I've been there for three and a half years. Another company with a very much a social, a real purpose socially, providing services for the community on behalf of governments. And I'm on the board of PZ Cousins. Where does it take me? I don't know. I don't really have a grand plan. I like being busy. I like being purpose-driven. I like being international. 
I like learning. And one day, might I write another book? I don't know. If I did, it would probably be more about what's it really like being non-executive director. That's an excellent next step. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. That's it for the Growth Business for this week. See you next time.